Good morning. Uh, my name is Russell. I'm filling in for Tim Jennings today. He is in northwest Idaho. We want to wish uh, uh, him and them well. I want to welcome visitors to the class. I see some new faces here. We have part of our fan club from New York is here. Uh, and I want to welcome back those uh, familiar faces who haven't been here in a while. Let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to ask your presence, your Holy Spirit, to guide our study today uh, as we continue to delve into the writings of Peter. Uh, we want to better understand how this reveals your character of love and truth and freedom. Uh, please continue to bless our class uh, corporately and individually. Uh, in the name of Jesus, amen. amen. We're studying Lesson 8 today um, in the quarterly. Feed my sheep, First and Second Peter. Let's jump in, right? A Sabbath lesson, the memory text. Just from the New King James Version. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Uh, obviously, they're speaking of Christ here. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. What does this text mean? This is what it says. What does it mean? One of the cases where there's a little semantic difference between sins and sin, sin as a condition or a disease versus sins as acts or behaviors or... Commodities, yeah, okay. We've been over this many times in this class, um, but for those of you who, or for those who here are watching that uh, are, are a bit unfamiliar with it, let's, let's think rationally about this a little bit. And it also depends on which law of the lens you're looking through. I mean, virtually everything, every study of Scripture depends on which law lens you're looking through. If we think that uh, Jesus bore every single sin committed by every single individual that has ever lived, does that make a difference versus him bearing the sinful nature, the disease of sin? Yes, because when you think that he bore the disease of sin, then it's like he eradicated sin by doing that. Okay. But if he's bearing each individual sin, then it would go on and on as long as humanity was alive. We continue to be bearing, and then that doesn't even make sense. I mean, I agree, it doesn't make sense. But you can find the majority of Christianity has that mindset: all sins, past, present, and future. If that's the case, then Hitler and Stalin and all the physicians who provide abortions and et cetera, et cetera, have done, did Christ a favor by eliminating, terminating lives early. Every murderer from Cain on down has uh, done God a favor by terminating lives early so that these people didn't sin as much in their lifetime. It's, in my way of thinking, is somewhat irrational. With the caveat that I used to be in that mindset, I used to be in that irrational mindset because I didn't, I didn't know any better. It's like treating the fever and the cough while you're dying of pneumonia. Yeah, I mean, and do we do that here in America? Yes, it's a multi-billion-dollar industry treating cold and flu symptoms. We love to treat the symptoms. What's the cascade? Let's let's review. What's the cascade? Lies believed lead to before that lies believe it's broken is breaking the circle of love and trust which cascades on down to 
fear and selfishness. You know, I got to look out for myself because no one else is going to. Fear and selfishness leads to eventually. That, that's the that's the end point. But in between there, it leads to behaviors, sins that we do to protect self. So the, the sins, uh, commodity sins, is third in the cascade or fourth. I know from my past, I, I went to a lot of AA meetings and things like that, and alcohol is but a symptom. So actually to get rid of your alcoholism, your drug addictions and things, you need to get to the root of the problem. And you take care of the root of the problem and the symptoms subside. Oh, okay, so yeah, yeah. So you're you're suggesting that the the attempt to self medicate with alcohol is the symptom of a a different different issue. Yes, the last part of the text: by whose stripes you are healed. How, how are we healed by his quote stripes? The concrete mindset would think that we're simply healed by Christ getting beaten. I'm curious, how many ever took Life and Teachings of Jesus class from Jack Blanco over here at, at Southern? I did. He did a very compelling um, lecture on what it meant to be to be flogged in Roman times. Um, they didn't just use a, a, a switch or a leather strap. Even they they had this stick with six or seven leather straps on it, and the end of each leather strap they embedded a, a sharp piece of iron, and that's what you got flogged with. He got flogged twice. Okay, I imagine his back looks like a topographical map. I imagine the back of Christ in heaven today looks worse than his hands and feet and the side does. From all the scarring of him being flogged. But how does that heal us? Text says, by his stripes we are healed. Uh, well, you know, if you go back to Isaiah 53 where this all started. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to get to that in a minute. He, you know, you go to verse 6, uh, who's doing the talking here? You know, the, what's the context of the talking? And the talking is done in verse 6 says, we, like lost sheep, have gone astray. So that's who's doing the talking. It's not necessarily God saying this is how it is, or is Isaiah saying, well, I'm getting a message from God saying this is how it is. Isaiah here is in vision or in, or in the spirit talking as a lost sheep. You know, the, this is who's doing the talking. We, and if you get down to verse 11, it switches pronouns to I, and then God starts doing the talking through Isaiah. But here we're, looking, we're, we're listening to the lost sheep do the talking, and we esteemed him, it says in verse 4, we esteemed him stricken and smitten of God. So God, these lost sheep uh, have this belief that God has caused these stripes. And that's why you, you see Jesus uh, in front of the court there, with Caiaphas and some of the scribes, they smack his face, right? And they say, who smites you? Mm -hmm. Remember they ask him that. Who is this? They're, 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 they're calling on this verse right here. They're saying, this is, we're doing the work of God. Are they doing the work of God? I mean, we should thank them if they are. You're like, you know, why, like, why get on the Jews about being Christ killers and all this when they did the whole world a big favor by killing them, right? I mean, if, if they didn't kill them, we're not healed, right? They're not doing the work of God. So, you know, but Peter in Acts says, this man you have slain. And it caused them, they didn't say, well, you know, we needed to die because without his stripes, we're, you know, we're not healed. So we actually did the world a favor. They said, no, they, they were pricked in their heart. 
when they realized what they had done and they repented. So that's the stripes that we inflicted on Christ, humankind inflicted on Christ, should bring us to repentance. Like those, you know, that's the whole issue. Does what you've done in the horror of what you've done bring you to repentance? Any other thoughts? Yes. I think of it like um, if I was standing somewhere with my kids and somebody held up a gun and I know they were going to shoot one, one of my children and I would jump in front of it to take the bullet. It's not taking the bullet, it's the love I have <clears throat> for my children would be the whole point. It's not only the bullet penetrating into me. It's the love that Christ had for us to be beat. Okay. Now, good. I think we're getting somewhere. Multiple times... Especially, I mean, the entire Gospel of John, basically, uh, is a revelation that God himself was on the cross that day. Okay? It's a revelation. What should be healing is the revelation that God himself will not use his power to prevent his cre- to interfere with his creature's free will. Okay? Christ said, forgive these people. They, they know not what they're doing. Okay? Were they forgiven? By whom? By God. By Christ. By Christ and by God. Were they saved? No. Not till they make that choice. We don't know. Well, um, yeah. We don't know yet. They have to make that choice. They weren't saved just because God forgave them. Correct. Exactly. So the, the knowledge that God himself uh, is the kind of God that will not interfere with his creation's free will, even to the point of laying down his own life that we might live, that should be healing. Romans says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Okay? I think this is what this exactly what this text is uh, trying to lead us to, to understand. And, I mean, what we studied in this class, that his act of giving his life in selfless love, purging that selfish nature or correcting Adam's error and perfecting human character that he can then offer to us is the remedy. Mm -hmm. So his stripes, that process that he went through is what developed the remedy. That's, that's how we're healed. That's how we're saved is because he developed something that he could give to us. Right, we're going to get deeper into that, I believe, in Monday's lesson. Yes, sir. Yeah, I think, you know, you go back to Genesis and Adam, the, uh, you know, that was the issue. And you mentioned power, you know, that he, he gave up his power. And then back in Genesis 3, the issue was, can we trust this all-powerful God? You know, he doesn't want us to eat from this tree of and evil because we'll be as gods. You know, we'll have all the power he has, and he doesn't want that because he wants to, you know, abuse his power in order to manage us. And uh, that was Satan's allegation yeah. through through the serpent. Uh, that through the serpent, and and that so that accusation had to be answered. And I think the cross, that's what the cross does. It answers that accusation, saying, "If I'm all about power and I'm an abuser of power, certainly I would use it to save myself. I would use it to save my son. But I'm going to back off and let you do what you want to do." And, and, you know, we did what we wanted to do. When we, when the, the leaders of the collective, the church, felt threatened by this individual, 
they silenced him. Right. It's better that one man die than, than an entire nation. That wasn't some great revelation or some godly revelation by Caiaphas. That was the way evil thinks. You know, it's better to do in this one person than to than to risk the whole collective. You know? Right. And uh, you find that over and over in collectivism, and that's what we got. We got the before this whole thing could proceed, before we could have judgment. We have to have we have to have the officers of the court that are going to make that judgment. God and His Son Jesus clear. Their character has to be clear. They can't make a judgment with an accusation standing against them. You know that they're abusers of power. That's what the cross did. It cleared their character. So now we can proceed with judgment. That's the good news. Right. And um, not one related to what he just said. So saying it's better that one man die for the people is followed by we have no king but Caesar. Right. So you can see that that wasn't the true motive. It was preserving their own power. Correct. And the other thing that um, really strikes me about this is Jesus, through this whole period, we have several instances where he wasn't thinking about himself. And I don't know if any of you have ever been in intense pain. When you're in intense pain, you tend to be very self-centered. Yes. And he not only forgave his enemies, he gave Pilate an opportunity to know and, and trust him. He thought about his mother. Yep. He cared about the thief on the cross. He was very other-centered in his own moments of intense agony. I, I think that's just so remarkable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, forgiving his enemies. I mean, it, we 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 sometimes have a difficult time forgiving friends and family here. I still have a really, really tough time forgiving, uh, conceptualizing forgiving enemies. I've been told many times to contemplate and meditate on the cross, and I had a hard time with that because I don't like torture and, and all that stuff. Right. But what? I finally have come to, it has exposed two characters, the true character of God and the true character of Satan. And to me, that's what draws me to the truth, to the cross, is the true character of God and what that all involved and what how horrendous Satan really is. Yeah, I, I think I would add a character that it exposed Christ's character as well. Okay, as a, a different being within the Godhead, and as a fully human, fully divine, unique creature that Earth has ever seen. And we're going to touch more on you know, the divinity versus humanity in Wednesday and Thursday's lesson. Uh, in Sabbath's lesson, also states that, quote, it was God himself who came in human flesh and who lived and died so that we can have the hope and promise of eternal life. Um, it indeed was God himself who came and lived and died, um, but not for the hope and promise of eternal life. I, I have to respectfully disagree with the last part of that statement. He came for the revelation of eternal life itself. And there's a, there's a subtle distinction between the hope and promise of eternal life and an actual revealing of eternal life. Okay, what John seventeen three should be a familiar text. Thank you. Now this is life eternal. That they may know you, the one true God, and him whom thou hast sent. 
we we've touched uh, or you know in past classes on some of the some of the subtleties you know we we think that um you know we claim the promises of god just just claim the promises of god are we to actually believe in the promise or are we to believe in the god that made the promise okay are we to believe in the hope and the promise of eternal life or are we to understand what eternal life is now here today because eternal life wouldn't be too much fun if it was a horrible eternal life if it was with the type of God that um, much of Christianity believes him to be, no thanks. That's exactly right. All right. Sunday's lesson. Jesus, our sacrifice. What do you hear when you hear that term, Jesus, our sacrifice? You still think in concrete terms and see little baby lambs getting their throats slit, arterial blood spray, having their organs burnt on an altar and eaten by the priests. We think in terms of uh, the priests of Baal cutting themselves and dancing around an altar. We still have an appeasement mindset when it comes to when we hear the term sacrifice. It's hard to eradicate from your head. I mean, it is. It's almost like it's part of our DNA. And it may be, for all I know. I mean, that may be, that may be part of the... Part of the change that occurred in Adam, that he passed on, Adam and Eve, when they passed on their DNA to their descendants. Maybe this, this weird appeasement mindset. Jesus had a perfect world in Adam. He had, there was no sin in Adam at all. Mm. Well, I mean, other than what Lucifer did, but I mean as... That's where sin originated. As life in heaven. His father, the angels... He was surrounded by pure love. And he left it to come down here knowing what would happen to him. That would be a sacrifice that I don't know that I could make. If I lived in my house and I had pure love and peace all the time, and I knew I had to give it up for a life of... I can't think of another word I'm going to say, but would you would you do it for your child? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely, I would do it for my child. Believe me. Well, this is what he did. Sacrifice that he gave up to come here for us is amazing. Oh, I I I concur. I mean, this it boggles the mind. Um, from Sunday. This is, again, a quote from the lesson. Quote, an overarching theme of the Bible, maybe even the overarching theme, is that of God's work in saving fallen humanity. From the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis to the fall of Babylon in Revelation, Scripture is in one way or another, Scripture in one way or another reveals the work of God seeking to save, quote, that which is lost, referencing Luke 19.10. Um, is, that, is that all that Scripture is doing? Okay. I agree. What, what else is it doing? Revealing God's character. Good. Yes. Scripture is a revelation of God's character. And is it the only revelation of God's character? Satan's It's a revelation of Satan's character. And also, I and I'm sure a lot of people, when you've done terrible things in your life, you look back with regret, with embarrassment, with chagrin. You... Um, Sometimes make other bad choices because of the original bad choices you made. Now you don't feel worthy to have better things, make better choices. You just keep on making bad choices 
because of the previous bad choices. And I think that part of the Bible is to inspire us to understand that even though our nature is to do that, that God still thinks we're worthy of that kind of sacrifice and that, no, we don't deserve to make, continue to make bad choices. We don't deserve to be lost. God thinks we deserve to live. I think one of the more beneficial things about Scripture is it provides the context within which this whole theme is being acted out. Okay, it provides... It provides a, uh, a revelation of the source of evil, of the source of, uh, of human and universal suffering. As it started, didn't start here on earth. There's certain, certain texts that draw back the curtain and show us a bigger, broader reality. That it's not just, it's not just a problem with humans on this little planet. Okay, it's much bigger and broader than that. And while, while Scripture does a fantastic job of showing God's intervention to, uh, to attempt to reach out, bridge the gap now between um, heaven and fallen humanity, I think it does much, much more. Other thoughts? Yes. You know, if you look at the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, at least in the Declaration of Independence, the, I thought there was uh, you know, the most read book in the colonies was uh, King James Version, and uh, the whole impetus, the whole country was built, you know, the lamb-like country, Revelation, the lamb came up as a lamb, built on this idea that, um, you know, this system of government recognizes it's an individualism, it's an individualism system of government, it's not collectivism, and uh, and uh, for that to work, and there actually to be liberty and freedom, people would have to self-police. And um, self-govern, yes. They'd have to self-police themselves, and the King James version of the Bible was the book for people to look at and get the guidelines, so they could self-police, and there could be freedom and not tyranny, just another form of tyranny in this country. And yet, that same King James Bible tells us what's going to happen to that lamb. Okay, it will eventually become a, a different beast and grasp hands with the dragon and become a coercive power like every other government on the planet. Right. Well, you know, what's that, Deterkaville, the guy, the French the sociologist who came over and kind of observed or like what early America was all about. You know, people were, Americans were running around, you know, Protestant, Protestant Christianity, you know, proselytizing out west frontiersmen and the Indians because they realized we couldn't maintain our liberties without a book of a, a creator God with guidelines so we could self-police. The the countries would not would cease to exist as the way it was formed if we could not self-police under the scriptures. So that's it has a very it was in the early colonies they felt it was it was it crucial for maintaining liberty. Yeah, and now with the benefit of two hundred almost two hundred and fifty years of hindsight it was a better methodology, wasn't it? Okay. Um, it's, it's been difficult for me to watch uh, the de deterioration of our nation, even in my short lifetime. Uh, it's been hard to watch. And you know, I've had, when I was in Africa with Tim and, and Christy, we had some pretty deep, long conversations about this because at that time it was, it was um, like three weeks before the, the election. So everybody, even South Africa, they are all fascinated by uh, U.S. politics. 
And all we got asked about was, who's going to win, Trump or Hillary, Trump or Hillary, Trump or Hillary? And so we got into some deep conversations about this, and, and we both came to the conclusion that we need to divest ourselves of any identity that we have as being citizens of the United States. As difficult as that is, because that's, that's an integral part of, of my identity, I imagine it's an integral part of your identities as well. If you were ra- if born and raised here, you know we're we're U.S. citizens. We we're, we're we live in we live in the the breadbasket of the world, the prosperity, the the lone superpower, if you will. And, you know, there's there's an element of of pride that's associated with that. But the reality is is that if if Revelation scriptures to be believed, that superpower is going to use that power to coerce minds and hearts and minds to follow a certain pathway that we may not want to travel. The Bill of Rights was a Bill of Rights that was God given. You know, that's the, that, that, that no man gave it to us. That's what makes them unalienable, you know. And that's what makes that our, our, our experiment, our American experiment, exceptional is because, you know, <clears throat> You have to have a higher power, a creator God, give you those rights. And Jefferson spells that out in the Declaration of Independence. I mean, he doesn't say anything about Christ specifically, but he does talk about a creator God. And this is the whole impetus for, uh, you know, this nation. Excuse me for interrupting. If I actually respectfully disagree with Jefferson, if you believe in God, God's laws being a natural law, design law, then... What rights are afforded under design law? Are there really any rights? We talk about rights. The concept of rights, I believe, is a, is a concept that is, evolves through an imposed law construct. Do we have a natural right to life, or do we have the privilege of life? A natural right? Do we have the right to happiness, or do we have the privilege of pursuit of happiness? It's a bit of semantics. It, but the thing was this is that individualism you know, sometimes gets painted as selfishness and greed or whatever but true enough it is but the thing is individualism doesn't try to sell you a utopia it, it recognizes flawed human nature and if you deny you know collectivism tries to deny flawed human nature and if you deny it you, you know you're kind of going off on a, a, a thinking that well we're, we're capable of all this goodness when no on this side of sin we're not capable of all this goodness and individualism says it doesn't try to promise you utopia. All it does is say, look, every right you enjoy, every God-given right you enjoy from your creator, this person over here also has those same rights. So hopefully that, that will refrain you from affecting somebody else negatively. The other way is justice comes by a jury of peers and it's swift. It doesn't try to tell you we're going to have a utopia. It, it, it's, it doesn't try to sell you that lie. Collectivism tries to sell you that lie. You know, we're all basically good. All our leaders are basically good. We'll all share the work. We'll all share the rewards. It'll all be utopian. It's a lie. You can't do it. So the best you can do is self-police yourself, recognize the other person has the same rights you do, so you can't impinge on those, and, and then have swift justice by a jury of peers. That's the best you can do. Divide your men in power so you have a division of power. That's the best that earthly governments can do. I agree. Yes, sir. When I think of rights, it becomes legalistic. And as a Christian, I have privileges of serving God. I tend to agree with that. The concept of rights, I think, evolved from a from an imposed law, earthly government um, structure. Okay, we I have the right 
afforded me by the Constitution of the United States, Second Amendment, and a privilege afforded me from the state of Tennessee to carry a weapon. It's, it's my right, but it's only a right because the government said it's a right. Well, not according to Jefferson. It's God-given. No man gave me that right. It's Self-defense is a right from God. If self-defense is a right from God, then why didn't he defend himself on the cross? It's a right. It doesn't mean you use it. You, it is a right if you so desire. Mm, I have to ponder that. In the meantime, also from Sunday's lesson, Peter thus likens Christ's death to that of a sacrificial animal in the Hebrew Bible. A sinner brought a sheep without blemish to the sanctuary. The sinner then laid his hands on the animal, referencing Leviticus 4, 32 and 33. The animal was slaughtered and some of his blood smeared on the altar and the rest was poured at the base. Leviticus 4.34. Then uh, I emphasize this in my notes myself. The death of the sacrificial animal provided atonement for the one who offered the sacrifice. Really? Did the death of of a lamb provide atonement? Symbolic. Thank you. It's, it's, a, it's a type of things to come. It's symbolic of a greater reality. It's, it's trying, to, trying to lead the minds of the children of Israel operating in that Levitical law system, trying to open their minds to a broader and greater reality of things to come. I'm not reading this as more outside of symbolism, though. The, the writer. I don't think he's writing this outside of symbolism. You may be right. You, you may be dead on. The, the, the writer may intended to have. Um, but I think it would have been appropriate to say the, the death of the sacrificial animal was symbolic of the atonement provided by Christ a few thousand years later. Okay, the, the statement says the death of a sacrificial animal provided atonement for the one who offered the sacrifice. The death of the sacrificial animal was symbolic of atonement. It was. It was supposed. It, that's right. You, you take your pet, take it down there, cut its throat, arterial blood spray, watch the thing. You know, its last gasp of breath, and the, as the light goes out in its eyes, sh- should be revolting. It was supposed to invoke a, a, a sense of shame and horror and a, and a reaction within the slaughterer. Not. It wasn't appeasement for God. Correct. It was a lesson for us, not a, not a some sort of payoff for God. So right. when we looked at Christ's death, we understood it. It was it was a symbol to show us the pain and hurt that we should feel of what He did to, for us and what we did to Him. Yeah, Rachel. The emotion of pity and sympathy is an important human emotion, but it's inadequate. And an example of that would be the women that are weeping for Jesus' pain. They see the blood. They see how he's being mistreated by the mob. But they're not truly repentant for their own sins. And he says, daughters of Jerusalem, weep for yourselves. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. And probably the results of sin would be your own death. that you wouldn't learn very much if you died. <laughs> so <laughs> Right. Right. You know, it's an indicator of what would happen to you 
if sin wasn't held, you know, if the results of sin wasn't held at bay by God. Yeah, and evidence that the, the those those who died will not have learned very much is they will all be resurrected with the same characters that they went in the grave with. And when the holy city comes down on the earth and the doors are open, the gates are open, none of them will come in. Back that way. Um, this is from Isaiah 111. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord, I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams, the fat and the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs. Hosea 6 6, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And then Christ himself quoting Hosea 6 6, he's talking to the Pharisees. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. Could the writer have meant that killing the animal was supposed to soften the killer's heart and bring them to at one minute? If that was the design, I'm sure that was God's design for setting up the system in the first place. Did it work? For some. For some. It doesn't always. What God Did it work for the nation of Israel collectively? It was never meant to. I'm not sure I agree. I think it was it was designed to not only change the children of Israel's heart, but then they were going to go they were supposed to go change the hearts of pagan tribes and nations around them. The uh, the act of atonement that through the sacrificial system was a theater of what was to come of Christ. Christ was the only one that could actually create that official atonement. Okay. That's that's fair. That's a fair point. I don't want anyone to walk out of here thinking that I'm I'm not in that camp because yes, Christ Christ is the is the uh, the one atonement between God and man. No no question about it. So during that special system, the act of atonement for the participants, it wasn't at one minute with, for them, you know, with God for those who were true at heart, but for but to actually uh, to be the all encompassing saving grace, it was not. My, my point is that the, the nation of Israel got so, their conscience became so seared by cutting the throats of animals and cutting the throats of animals that they just, it just became a ritual. It just became a blind ritual. And, and they get, then they got to the points where some, some genius said, hmm, I'm going to raise a bunch of animals and sell them here in the temple courtyard for those who don't have them. I can make, I can make a killing. Yeah, literally. <laughs> That's what I've heard. No pun intended. All puns are intended. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, thank you. Exactly. How much different is it now? We now claim the blood of our Savior stamped on the books in heaven and, and now we it's all good. My conscience is conscience is clear. Yes, ma'am. When you think about it, uh, I, I hear this all the time. It's all about the blood. It's all about it's covered up blood. And I think go back to uh, Abraham and how God said, "Sacrifice your son," and he never flinched. And I always wondered why. Why didn't he flinch? Why I'm not. Didn't he asked God, "Are you seriously?" And as I studied, their culture was sacrifice, sacrifice children, whatever. So we have to look at these things in the culture that they are used to. And so he, that was all, that was a custom that was anything out of the ordinary. 
Now, if you said that today, in some cultures, it would be appalled. In other cultures that we know of, that sacrificing a child is nothing that's part of what is done. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure that I agree that Abraham didn't flinch. Uh, I think he, he may have had, he, I'm sure he had some cognitive dissonance, and he had, so, he had such cognitive dissonance, he decided not to tell his wife about it. <laughs> he, he packed up uh, in the middle of the night and bailed uh, without letting her know, hey, by the way, Sarah, I'm going to kill our only son. See ya. Love you, dear. You got a comment? It became a ritual. You know, the killing of the slitting of the throat became going back to that. Um, it, it can. It can have that effect. You know, people can go that way and think they're appeasing God. I mean, that's where the payment, you can pay for sin and appease God. And that, that sort of payment mentality kind of came from the Catholic Church. If you look back, you know, indulgences and all that, you know. No, it came from way before the Catholic Church. Okay, but... Okay, but the Christian form of it came, you know, what was called the Christian form, it came from the Catholic Church, which they took some of this, like, well, you can pay, you can pay for sin, and you know, if you kill an animal back, in, you know, back in the Hebrew times, just and think you can, this appeases God and pays for sin, you could go off on a road thinking, well, my sin's paid for, you know, if I sin again, I can just pay for it again, uh, and um, and then you, you you put that on Christ, like he could, he. You know, there is no sacrifice for willful sin. There is no sacrifice for willful sin. Only unintentional. And uh, it says that in Scripture. There is no sacrifice for willful sin. Hebrews 12. Okay. But the thing is, is that, again, it was not supposed to appease God. It was supposed to bring a change in the, in the killer. It was, it was seeing the innocent blood spew all over the place. Where you were supposed to say, look, look where sin leads. Even the sins I don't think are that bad, you know. Uh, maybe a little lie here or there, you know. Uh, you know things that are not fatal, you know. Maybe they end up being fatal. It, maybe not in your generation or your sons or your grandsons, but somewhere down the line that keeps going and it will be fatal. Cain and Abel, it turned what Adam and Eve did turned into a slaughter of the innocent, and that's where sin ultimately ends. And all these things that are not slaughtering the innocent, but they're still sins according to the Bible will lead to that. And that's what we need to see. That if we keep going down off even those lesser things, eventually we'll be slaughtering the innocent. Well I, I think that that was part of the object lesson. Okay, the the repeated taking of life, it scars that person that takes the life. Whether it's a lamb, whether it's your fellow man, whether it's a squirrel that's getting into your garden, it it damages the person or the being taking the life. Like the, the circumcision. A lot of people get like, "Well, that's a different culture. We don't do that anymore." But the circumcision. I mean, I don't, I've never seen a circumcision in, in real life, but I've watched it on YouTube. I wanted to see what a circumcision really was. I'm going to cut you off. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know what? The father was supposed to do it. It wasn't supposed to be done behind closed doors. The father was supposed to shed the blood of his innocent son, eight-day-old son, right? And I think. Doing that and God requiring that, so why could God be so cruel? You know, as a poor, even your God is a bloody God. But doing that, you get a little taste of what God went through, seeing His Son's blood shed. You get a little taste. So you want to you want to relate to God. You want to you want to know God. Well, circumcise your son, and you get a little taste of what God had to suffer. The, that may that may be that may be part of the ordinance, but the ordinance of circumcision was a an intervention. 
made by God to try to derail and hold in check the effects of sin on the earth. Okay, there's a, there's a statement in Ellen White that says that, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here off the recesses of my cobweb-infested mind, if man had kept the knowledge of God as given to Adam and Eve in the garden and passed down through the, through the uh, early patriarchs, there would have been no need for a covenant to be given to Abraham. And if the covenant given to Abraham had been kept, of which circumcision was a symbol, there would have been no, the Israelite, the children of Israel would not have been led into idolatry and taken into slavery in Egypt. And if the under the, if the covenant that circumcision represented, or excuse me, if the there would have been no need for the Ten Commandments to be given on Sinai. That's what it is. If the, they would not have been induced into slavery, and the the need for the Ten Commandments given on Sinai would not have been necessary. And if the principles covered in the Ten Commandments had been kept, then the Levitical law, the additional additional Levitical explanation of the law, would have not been necessary. So all of these things down through time are God's intervention to try to 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 keep the knowledge, the true knowledge of God in humanity's mind, all the way from the Levitical law to the Ten Commandments, back to circumcision, back to the knowledge of God. This is what God has been doing. He's been chasing humanity ever since Eden to say, look, this, that's not how I am. It's not my character. And ultimately, what he had to do is he had to come to earth himself and say, okay, I'm going to reveal my character through my son. One second. Uh, Peggy? Why is there no sacrifice for willful sin? All of us have committed willful sin at some point. Does that mean that those sins are not forgiven? Good question. Any thoughts? There's sin, there's transgression, there's iniquity. I think iniquity means willful sin. But almost everything can be forgiven except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I would suggest iniquity is the fallen human nature that results in sin. Just wondering, did Adam do the willful sin? Yes. That's a great question. It ties in with that comment. Uh, it's a fantastic question. Did Adam sin either out of a, a boundless love for Eve and say, I don't, I don't want her to, I don't want her to be lost by herself. I want to, you know, I, if, if she's going to be lost, I'm going to go with her. Or did he just say, well, she ate the fruit. She's not dead. I'll eat it too. We don't know. We don't know his mindset. I think that was the first case of idolatry. He put her before God. I think she committed idolatry before him, if you want to to go down that pathway. You know, it's interesting parallel between what Adam and Abraham went through. Because Abraham's called the father of faith. And... When Jesus was, uh, well, when, when he took Isaac, Isaac had interesting faith because he asked his father, where is the sacrifice? And what did his father say? He said, think about this. He said, my son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. The ram was there, but it was symbolic of Jesus himself. He will provide himself. So Abraham could understand what God the Father was going to do. Because I think that there's an illusion that, you know, he was so proud. It was almost like his son Isaac was an idol. 
But it also shows how Jesus agreed with the Father to go ahead and be the, the sacrifice for the human rights, or for, for his government. In the back. I think, yeah, it's either pride or, or whatever that we would do willful sin, but at some point God can get our attention and point it out to us. And once we realize it and we repent of that sin, then it's forgiven. Like take David. I mean, he willfully sinned with, you know, um, Bathsheba. Bathsheba. And he, he had to use his servant to go to him and point it out to him and tell him a story. And once he realized it, he repented of it. Yeah. And he was forgiven. I mean, he still suffered a lot of consequences. Well, I think he was forgiven no matter what. He's forgiven. He defaulted forgiven. Well, let's, let's not... Um, it's not confused, forgiven, and saved. Because God forgives, period. Okay, Sin reacts on the sinner. It's up, up to us to accept that forgiveness. Thank you, yes. And internalize it and change our pathway. That's correct. It's our choice. That's the song title. When, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Okay. And that song applies to everybody, saved or lost. Jesus is the sacrifice that matters. Everything that was killed, sacrificed, the goats, the doves, the lambs, and all that, that's dead and gone. Jesus is the only sacrifice that's still living. He died for our sins, past, present, and future. The condition of being forgiven is simply going in your closet and having a little talk with Jesus, confessing that sin to him, no matter what it was. He'll forgive it, or else his death is in vain. His cause will be bought with a price. Christ was his blood. The only blood that got up from the grave. Any sin that you commit is can be forgiven. Just go and ask Jesus to forgive you for it. Thank you. Um, the world will say I'm not a Greek scholar, but I believe with you the translation is to continue on sinning. The translation for the word willful. Oh, okay, so keep on sinning. That makes sense. That you just you you persist in a in a life and a pathway of sin. Now, what is it about that persistence in sin that lead that that uh, gets to the point where there's no sacrifice for it? It's the broken relationship, yes, but it is something that happens in here. It's a perpetual scarring, the searing of our conscience is with a hot iron to to now where the Holy, there's nothing left inside us to, to even hear the Holy Spirit wooing us. But we're completely scarred and numb to any influence of the Holy Spirit. So there's no sacrifice left. This is, this is Lucifer's state in heaven. There, there was, what, what, what more could God have done? Okay? Lucifer was the covering cherub. He, he, knew, he knew the character of God better than any creature in the universe. I mean, there, there, there was no greater revelation that could be made. Humanity was different. Humanity was deceived. Or as some would suggest, Adam may have sinned will, willingly. Whatever the case, there was, still, there was still revelations yet to be made about the knowledge of God that would save humanity. And that's, that's why this, this plan was put into motion before the world was created. I, I need to move on here. Monday's lesson, the passion of the Christ. The lesson states that the Greek word that gets translated as passion in English refers to a verb meaning, quote, to suffer. Many Christians 
referenced his physical suffering, especially in the last week or so before his death. Um, was Christ really passionate about his physical suffering? What about the suffering to overcome the human nature? The human nature that, that, was, that was constantly tugging at him to save himself. Is that the suffering he was passionate about? What uh, what do you think is what do you think he was more passionate about physical suffering or the the suffering to overcome human nature? The word passion can have many meanings in English. One of which is a quote intense desire, enthusiasm for something. Well, what was the, what what do we think the something is that he had intense desire, intense enthusiasm? He said, "I have desired to eat this Passover with you." Okay. His desire to be with his disciples, and I think one of the hardest things was to realize that he went to the cross with nobody on his side. Mm-hmm. Well, as also he says, I delight to do that will of my God. Yes. The delight was he wanted to get this program over so he could get the things restored. And I have completed the work you gave me to do. I have made you known. But before we times out, you need to read the quote on the bottom of Monday. Please uh, help me out. Read it for me. This was the most important thing in the whole lesson to me. Satan, with his fierce temptations, wrung the heart of God. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Pope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave, a conqueror, or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. Christ felt the anguish which the sinner will feel when the mercy shall no longer plead for the guilty race. It was a sense of sin, bringing the Father's wrath upon him as man's substitute, that made the cup he drank so bitter and broke the heart of the Savior. That's from the Desire of Ages. Okay. This is a, there's some dark speech in this text. Yes, there is. The part that I've often wondered about... Deconstruct it for me. No, I can't do that. Yes, you can. (laughs) But the part that I wonder about is... He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. Now... That had to be the human part of him because he knows the end from the beginning. When he was in heaven, he knew it was going to happen. I think, I think everything described in that passage is his human mind. Okay? He couldn't see beyond the portals of the tomb. He didn't have a clairvoyance in his human mindset to be able to, to see past the grave. And yet, he told his disciples numerous times, rise in three days. They will, I will die and I will rise again in three days. And I don't understand. How did he know that? But he never experienced the wrath of his father before. Because he designed life that he knew. Thank you. Okay, how how many of you can predict the future? All of you. If I let go of my glasses, what's going to happen? They're going to fall to the ground. And and how many of you know what rate they're going to fall to the ground? How many of you remember your high school physics? 9.81 9.81 meters per second squared. How do you do that? How do you predict the future? I mean, how can you? How can you know? It's a law. It's an understanding of natural law, of design law. So you're telling me that he, it was natural design law that he knew that he would rise in three days? Yes, he was the creator. He designed life to operate around a certain set of principles okay. the principles of love okay this is why he was resurrected and we touch on this in uh, i think wednesday's lesson but then in knowing that how was his sacrifice so great 
If you knew that tomorrow you were going to be resurrected and live in utopia, would you mind dying today? Um, not at all. No. I think because he had the human nature, and human nature is selfish, and selfishness brings on fear. So the fear was consuming. There was no selfishness in Christ. Correct. Thank you. So I, I do think that within our human nature, we won't always be able to see what's ahead of us, but the connection with Christ, so we trust in God, yes. that what we cannot see, He's able and capable and will deliver because His promises have always been fulfilled. So Christ knew that. He knew the Father. The Father will make it happen. Even though His human nature was weak, He didn't give up on the hope that what the God, what Father, Father is capable of doing. That's right. The human nature and the divine nature were doing battle in his head. It was truth versus lies right there. Well, then this quote is not true. How so? Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror or tell him of the Father's acceptance of his sacrifice. In his human brain, I don't think it did. You know, there's a, there's a difference that happened at the Garden of Gethsemane. Up to that point, he was, he was in full awareness of that. But at that point is when the weight of the ability for... Lucifer, Satan, I'm sorry, to be able to go unleashed on, on Christ. And during that time period, I mean, he, that's why he, he sweat the blood. He thought to himself, how can I even go through this? And he started to, to lean on himself, but the, ever, the, the final act was complete trust in God. So, so that what he didn't have prior to Garden of Gethsemane is that unleashed power from um, Satan. You know, we see that many, many times in the scriptures where Satan would try to act, and he said, this is not your time yet. There was a time in the future, and it was going to be at the Garden of Gethsemane. And from that point forward, then those, those veils were, I mean, the human side came out on him. I think Christ only fear was at the point that he knew that God was going to look at him and see our sins and turn his back on him. That was his only fear was knowing that when he cried, my God, my God, why have that forsaken me? That was his only fear. That was his main suffering, to have his father turn his back on him because of our sin. Correct. And it's important to note that he didn't say, my God, my God, why are you torturing me? Why are you killing me? Why are you burning me in hellfire forever? He said, why have you let me go? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? Okay. I.e., the father's wrath. Uh, you know, uh, this lady about trying to understand the separation. You know, I've always looked at that as like, uh, he saw through the port. I mean, I, I have to disagree, I guess, with Ellen White respectfully. Uh, that he saw through the portals of tomb. You know, he stated what was going to happen after. But the thing was, imagine he'd been with the Father and the Holy Spirit from eternity. And now he was going to, I mean, he was going to experience a real death, a real separation. And, uh, that was the torture. Just this one day separation, or the three days, I guess. This three day separation was going to be torment with someone who'd been eternally with their father. I mean, think about the older couple that had spent every night together since they were married, and then one has to go to the hospital and they're not together anymore. I mean, it might not be forever, but just that separation when you've always had that togetherness is, is excruciating, you know. Uh, and uh, this is what he feared, and he wasn't experiencing, I'd have to disagree there, he's not experiencing the wrath of God, the Father. He's re she right here says, uh, the storm, I'm, I'm reading out of uh, uh, the conflict in it, uh, Spirit Prophecy, Volume 3. She says, the storm of Satan's wrath 
Not Father's wrath, Satan's wrath, beat upon him from the desert unto Calvary. It was he was experiencing Satan's wrath. And I, I think remember what he, he was also he was also experiencing the Father's wrath too, and the turning away for Satan. That, that, that's Psalm twenty two. That is a quote from Psalm twenty two. And if you read Psalm twenty two, David is being ex- exaggeratingly expressive of how he feels. It's not but if you go to the by the fifth verse, David says, I know you're there. I just feel this way. But I know you're always listening to me. Go read Psalm twenty two. He's leading you to Psalm 22. Read that. David knows God is there. God had not forsaken him. It's a, it is, it's a Jewish expression of, of exaggeration. If he Russell wrote, didn't say he had forsaken. Russell didn't say he was forsaken. He's saying that the, the wrath that Russell's talking about is the one that's revealed in uh, Romans, Romans 1. Where it talks 18, about, 22, 24, 26. The way it's not, not, uh, not creating a... I, Tina, I don't think that... I think... Christ's brain was unique in all of human, in all of time. Okay, he had a fully human brain. He had a fully divine uh, a part. He's fully human and fully divine. Okay, and that those two those two principles were antagonistic to one another. And there was a, there was a continual war in his head. We can't conceptualize it because we don't have a divine brain. So I think that statement can be accurate that he couldn't see through the portals of the tomb in his human. His human nature couldn't couldn't see. He couldn't, but he knew enough about. He knew that he was the designer of life, and he knew that once humankind restored back into the original nobility and image of God in Eden, life was the only thing that could happen. Life is the default of the universe. This, as far as we know, death death only occurs on our planet. That's it. So life. Life is, as far as we know, all all other intelligent beings are operating in harmony with the law of love, which is the law of life. I'm not going to understand it like it to heaven. There's lots we're not going to understand. I've got to wrap up here. Gracious Father, I want to thank you for uh, your insights. I want to thank you most of all for the revelation uh, of your character of truth, love, and freedom that was given to us uh, on Calvary. Uh, we ask for continued wisdom. We ask for continued insights. We ask for greater measure of the Holy Spirit. And we ask that you continue to mold and shape our characters that I like Christ so we can have the privilege of hastening his coming. In Jesus' name, amen.